welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 35, The Great Northern War and Peter Makes a Comeback. Last week, Peter the Great squared off against Charles XII of Sweden with disastrous results with the loss of thousands of men at the Battle of Narva. He then begins the painful rebuilding of the Russian army and navy to try to reverse the losses in the battlefield and in international prestige. He then comes upon a swampy land that he views as the ideal state for a new, westernized European city, a city to be known eventually as St. Petersburg. With some minor victories under his belt, Peter looked at the results of the Great Northern War and said, quote, The Swedes will go on beating us for a long time, but eventually they will teach us how to beat them. Typical of Peter to learn from defeat no matter the sacrifices his people had to make. While the war continued in spurts, the Tsar's attention was on building his new city of St. Petersburg. Colleagues and friends were aghast at Peter's decision to build there because of the incredibly cold winters and swampy conditions the land had the rest of the year. But Peter thought if the Dutch could build a city like Amsterdam on soggy ground, why can't he? The Tsar also needed a port for trade as well as a center to move his rebuilt army to, but he soon realized that the city needed to be important in its own right and not just exist. He was to make it the capital of all of Russia, which would occur by 1713. His vision would have some eventually calling the city the Venice of the North. Others would have a bleaker description as the city built on bones. The city was built by people forced to go there each summer, 30 to 40,000 strong. Many died of disease, starvation, or because of the backbreaking work. Peter had little concern for the enormous human toll that building the city exacted. He was also involved in seemingly every detail of the construction, from the parks to the artwork adorning both public and private buildings, to the type of stone used in the streets. It was to be everything Moscow wasn't. He hated Moscow, and as Derek Wilson writes in his biography of Peter, Muscovites hated St. Petersburg. Over time, Peter ordered all Muscovites involved in the government to move to the new capital. He was breaking one additional tradition of the old way. Russia was to be an empire, not just a principality, and he was the Tsar of Russia, and not just the Tsar of Moscow. On a personal note, we need to bring in an important person into Peter's and Russia's life, one Martha Skavronskaya, an orphan daughter of a Lithuanian peasant. This woman, who would be baptized into the Russian Orthodox Church, would meet Peter in 1703 and eventually become his wife, being known to history as soon as the first female ruler of Russia, Catherine the First. Peter would meet her in the house of his closest friend and confidant, Alexandra Menshikov, where she was a servant girl. While not a classic beauty, she was young, about 18, and quite buxom. There was something in her personality that would keep Peter enamored for the rest of his life. She would also stay friends with Menshikov for many years, until his eventual downfall, after Peter's death. Yet again, Peter would break with tradition, and by 1707, 
he would secretly marry this illiterate peasant woman. But as with everything in his life, tradition be damned. If Peter wanted it, he would have it. But the wedding was not publicly known, even by some members of his own family. The official public wedding would not come until February 1712. Now, back to the Great Northern War. Peter learned from his defeats that he was not equipped to meet Charles XII head-on. He fought small, indecisive battles, and even managed to retake Narva, which reversed his defeat years earlier. Charles was as stubborn as Peter, but with far fewer resources. He wanted a decisive battle, which his ministers warned him not to undertake. The king eyed the ultimate prize. He aimed straight at Moscow. He began planning for the invasion of Russia in 1705. Charles was campaigning in Poland that year, while Peter was supplying the Polish king Augustus with money and some troops, when word reached the Tsar that a revolt led by some Don Cossacks had erupted in Astrahan. Quickly put down by General Shermative, it was a warning to Peter, though. More was to come. In 1707, a third rebellion, the most serious of the time, erupted by Konrati Bulavin. Peter sent a small army led by Prince Yuri Dolgeruki to confront the rebels. Bolavin would not negotiate, and he slaughtered all 1,200 men. The Russian army was now in a pickle. Charles was threatening in the west, and this rebelling, rebellion was spreading in the south. Where to focus their attention? But luckily for the Russians, Charles strangely took a three-month break near Minsk at the exact time Bolavin's threat was at its apex. This allowed Peter to concentrate on that and brutally crushed the revolt by sending a large army under control of Yuri's brother, Vasily Dolgeruki, in November of 1708. In the previous few years, Charles and his commanders had won a number of battles against Peter and his friends, and I know I'm going to really botch this name, but it's a tough one. It's uh, the Swedish general Renskold at Fraustadt on the Silesian border in 1706. But nothing really came out of it. Charles now headed toward the Russian stronghold of Grodno to defeat the bulk of the Tsar's army, but Peter ordered a hasty retreat again, denying Charles the decisive battle he so yearned for. Peter now tried to find a peaceful solution, but Charles would have none of it. Why should he? No one would come to the Russians' aid, and to be honest, Charles had every reason to feel supremely confident in his abilities to destroy the Tsar's forces. Growing increasingly frustrated, Charles knew that he needed to press the issue and strike at the heart of Russia. In August 1708, the warrior king of Sweden began his march toward Moscow. Peter had expected it and headed out of Warsaw, where he was staying, leaving behind Menshikov and his best cavalry commanders, ordering them to slow Charles' advance without engaging them in a large pitched battle. What Peter had planned was to cost Charles everything, as he not only ordered the delaying tactics, but he created a scorched-earth wasteland in front of the Swedish army. With winter approaching, everyone expected Charles to stop and wait the weather out. But he had different ideas, as he was sure that the Russians were entrenched on the opposite sides of the approaching rivers, where he could outflank and crush them. The Russians, sensing this tactic, were nowhere to be found. Charles's scouts finally found out where they were, 
but the Swedes decided against taking any further action. They began to forage for food, but little was to be found. They threatened the remaining peasants, but there just wasn't much there by plan. Then the angry peasants started a guerrilla campaign which harassed the Swedes. Then time and time again the Russians confronted Charles's army, and then when things looked bad, they deserted the battlefield. Disease and hunger battered the Swedish army, but spring now approached, and the army began to feel more confident each day. Peter, fearing Charles's army, ordered fields burned and cities depopulated in the path towards Moscow. Cities like Dorpat were razed to the ground so as not to offer any sanctuary to the Swedish army. Numerous battles ensued, again with none being decisive. Then Charles decided to break off the march toward Moscow to head south into the breadbasket of Russia. This move was considered by many historians as one of the great blunders of all time. But aside from retreating back to Sweden, what choice did Charles have? His men were starving and he got word that a Cossack hetman, one Ivan Mezpa, pledged over 40,000 men to the Swedish king's cause. He needed to hook up with Ivan, and then he could march on Moscow. Only problem was, Mazpa couldn't deliver on his promise, as Peter had already decimated his forces, and only arrived in Charles's camp with a little over a thousand hungry men. Charles tried sending envoys to the Ottoman leader, Sultan Ahmed III, to enlist his support, but that failed. Summer turned to fall, and fall turned to winter, and as history would have it, the winter of 1708 and 09 was particularly brutal and cold. Anyone else would have headed back to Sweden, but Charles had no intentions of doing so. He knew he could win an all-out battle regardless of the state of his army. He wanted to call Peter out, and sensing the Swede's predicament, Peter obliged him and allowed Charles to pick the site that spring, and that site would be Poltava. Poltava was a fortified town with some 4,000 Russian troops garrisoned there, fitted with ample artillery to defend itself. Charles was still extremely confident that he could easily take the city before the main Russian army could arrive. The siege started on May 1st, 1709, but much to the Swedish king's surprise, the Russians stood fast. By June 15th, the Russians, though, were running out on shells. So much so that legend has it that Charles was actually hit by a dead cat launched by one of the cannons inside the city. Peter finally arrived at the head of a 40,000-man army. He stood on a hill overlooking the scene before him. He was still hesitant to launch into a full-scale battle, even though he already had a two-to-one advantage in numbers of available troops. Forays of cavalry were sent out by the Tsar, and one, which Charles himself went out to confront, fired on the king, striking him in the leg. For days, Charles's life hung in the balance. Peter knew this and took a position closer to the Swedish line, daring them to attack. Then... Peter supposedly, and I say supposedly, as the words were put to paper years after the battle. But it is likely the Tsar did say something akin to, and I quote, Let the Russian troops know that the hour has come which has placed the fate of the fatherland in their hands to decide whether Russia will be lost or will be reborn in a better condition. 
Do not think of yourselves as armed and drawn up to fight for Peter, but for the state which has been entrusted to Peter, for your kin and for the people of all Russia, which has until now been your defense and now awaits the final decision of fortune. Do not be confused by the enemy's reputation for invincibility, which themselves have been shown to be false on many occasions. Keep before your eyes in this action that God and truth are fighting with us, which the Lord, strong in battle, has already testified by his aid in many military actions. Think of this alone. Of Peter, know only that he sets no value on his life, if only Russia lives, and Russia piety and glory and well-being. The Tsar was fully aware that to lose would be devastating enough so to potentially have him deposed by his enemies. But to win would elevate Russia, and by association him, to international glory. June 28, 1709, was the day that changed Russia forever. Charles wanted to attack before dawn, with a full-out attack on Peter's left flank, but his cavalry, due to miscommunication, was not ready. The Tsar, sensing the weakness in his line, reinforced it. The Swedes, they began their attack at sunrise at 4 a.m. Fighting went on for hours with the Russians holding their positions bravely on both the right and in the center. The left, led by Menshikov, was beginning to buckle, leading for cries for reinforcement by Peter's friend. But the Tsar wisely ordered the men to fall back instead, to take advantage of their numerical superiority. The Swedes were losing men as fast as the Russians, but they had no reserves, and Peter had lots of them. Charles saw how bad things were going, so he ordered a fallback of his own to try to regroup. Peter saw this and began to press forward so as not to allow the Swedes any breathing room. Charles now ordered a full retreat. The Tsar knew his time had come and ordered 30,000 fresh troops into battle. Back and forth the battle raged with the Swedes performing incredibly well under the circumstances. Victory was not assured for either side until Menshikov came flying in with his cavalry and crushed the last of the Swedes. Charles was lucky to flee the battlefield alive, but 7,000 of his men were not so lucky, lying dead along with 2,700 being taken prisoner. The Russian toll was only 4,500 dead and wounded. The Battle of Poltava was over, and Russia was now viewed as one of the world's great powers that everyone would have to deal with. Peter was now the acknowledged rulers of a real country, an empire, and not an oriental backwater puppet of a horde or a Turkish Khan. Russia had arrived on the world stage in grand style. Next week, we discuss the ramifications of the victory over the army of Charles, which, while crushing, was still not over. Also, Alexis, the son of Tsar Peter, becomes a thorn in the side of the reformer of Russia as he reaches middle age, and his body begins to rebel against him after years of abuse. Now, for this week in Russian history, for the two-week period, January 16th through the 29th. In 1440, Ivan III of Russia is born. In 1547, Ivan IV of Russia, also known as Ivan Grozny 
or Ivan the Terrible, becomes Tsar of Russia. In 1598, Fyodor I, Tsar of Russia, died. In 1676, Tsar Alexis I of Russia died, and Fyodor III becomes Tsar of Russia. In 1696, Ivan V, Peter the Great's half-brother and Russian Tsar, died. In 1724, the Russian Academy of Sciences is founded in St. Petersburg by Peter the Great and implemented by Senate decree. It is called the St. Petersburg Academy of Sciences until 1917. In 1755, Moscow University is established on Tatiana Day. In 1775, Yemelyan Pugachev, the Russian rebel, is executed. And I guarantee you we'll have a slapshot episode on Pugachev's rebellion because it's a very important time. Uh, we'll have that when we get to it. In 1814, France defeats Russia and Prussia in the Battle of Brienne. In 1837, Alexander Pushkin, a Russian poet, died. In 1860, Anton Chekhov, another Russian writer, was born. In 1863, the January Uprising breaks out in Poland, Lithuania, and Belarus. The aim of the national movement is to regain Polish-Lithuanian-Ruthian Commonwealth from occupation by Russia. In 1869, Grigory Rasputin, the Russian monk, was born. In 1878, in the Russo-Turkish War, the Battle of Philippopolis, Captain Borago, with a squadron of Russian Imperial Army dragoons, liberates Plovdiv from Ottoman rule. In 1898, Sergei Eisenstein, the Russian film director, is born. In 1904, George Balanchine, the Russian court-born choreographer, is born. In 1924, Vladimir Lenin, Russian revolutionary, dies. In Petrograd, formerly St. Petersburg, Russia, is renamed Leningrad in his honor. 1944, just 20 years later, the Soviet forces liberated Leningrad, effectively ending a three-year Nazi siege, known as the Siege of Leningrad. In 1945 in World War II, the Red Army liberated the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp in Poland. In 1969, Czech student John Palach commits suicide by self-emoliation in Prague in protest against the Soviets' crushing of the Prague Spring the year before. And in 1969, something that was not known until after the Cold War and after the fall of the Soviet Union, a gunman actually attempted to assassinate Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, I will be putting up the uh, Slapshot edition of the uh, Life and Times of Charles XII of Sweden, tomorrow. Uh, I didn't want to do that before this podcast because it would have revealed too much. Well, don't forget to visit the iTunes App Store and download the Russian Rulers app. And please visit the websites at russianrulers.podhoster.com. Become a Facebook friend at Russian Rulers History Podcast. And don't forget to ask a question, make a suggestion, and please leave a comment. And as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.